BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Buongiorno and greetings from Rome on this Friday, April 14, where I'm still enjoying a month at the American Academy in Rome and where I'm just as eager as all of you are to get caught up on the news of the week with three of our top political reporters. And what a crazy week it's been. Two young Democratic members of the Tennessee legislature are back in their seats one week after being tossed out by the Republican majority. Donald Trump gives an eight-hour deposition in yet another investigation of him. And yet, the more legal trouble he's in, it seems the more support he gets among Republican primary voters. Meanwhile, Asa Hutchinson said he's running against Donald Trump, and Tim Scott says he's almost ready to run. Did anybody notice? Did anybody care? Dianne Feinstein asked Chuck Schumer to temporarily name somebody else to fill her seat on the Judiciary Committee, which turns out to be not as easy as it sounds. Joe Biden gets all the love in Ireland he's not been getting back here at home. And that's just for starters. Here today to help us make some sense of it all, Philip Bump, columnist for The Washington Post, author of the great new book, The Aftermath, and author of the newsletter, How to Read This Chart. Hello, Philip. Good morning, sir. Sudeep Reddy joining us again, senior managing editor from Politico. Hi, Sudeep. Hi, Bill. And David Jackson, national political correspondent for USA Today. Hello, David. Hey, Bill. How you doing? All right. So to borrow a phrase from uh, John McLaughlin and the McLaughlin Group, issue number one. Take the vote. Ayes 36. No zero. No And of course, that was the jubilation in the city council chamber uh, in Nashville when Justin Jones was um, elected to go back to the state legislature representing uh, Nashville. David Jackson, you've been covering politics probably longer than any of the rest of us. Have you ever seen anything as dumb as that move by the Republicans in Tennessee? No, no. It was it was just talking about handing, talking about giving your enemies a sword to beat you with. Uh, I was surprised by it, and uh, I just really don't know. I don't know what they were thinking, although my one of my guesses is the fact that I think there are a lot of Republicans across the country who are very mad about this Trump indictment in New York. and They feel like it's a hit job from the Democrats and they're going to retaliate any way they can. And I think that was part of the thinking with the Tennessee Republicans. They, they're just the parties are daggers drawn now. And so the Republicans just felt like they wanted to try to somehow punish the Democrats, even though they wound up doing the opposite. Well, so Sadiq, what did they gain by this, if anything? They gained a moment of uh, of press attention, a moment of online activism, a moment that will backfire uh, for at least the next year. Um, that's 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 not a whole lot to gain. Um, this is to me, and and this is probably the the story of the week of watching the pendulum start to swing back uh, in so many areas when uh, Republicans felt like they had lots of power and wanted to exert it, 
Um, this is where it has taken them. It has energized Democrats in uh, the South. This has ignited a conversation about gun violence and race and activism uh, in uh, a, a state I did not expect to be hearing it in uh, at this point in the cycle. And here we are. And so um, this is just what we're going to see over and over in all sorts of states where uh, Republicans feel like they had the upper hand and they've energized people and woken people up uh, uh, to but, what that looks like. Yeah, Sadeep, sticking with you just for a second. I, again, I'm 5,000 miles away, but I didn't see much support for the Republicans in Tennessee from Republican members of Congress or from Donald Trump. They, they know, I, I think most people outside uh, who are actual political operators these days knows, know, knew that this was going to backfire. You don't want to step into something like that, that you know is going to backfire. That's why it was just a, a, a momentary win of people who thought they had the upper hand and are recognizing they, they really do not. This, this, is, this is, to me, though, a, a natural course of, of watching power shift back uh, in a, a state where it was fairly lopsided. So, Philip... Is this a sign, and Sadiq indicated maybe, is, do you see this as a sign of a bigger problem in the Republican Party overall? I mean, kind of being tone deaf on some important issues today? Yeah, I mean, I, one of the, I, I thought it was interesting. Charles Cook for the National Review had, a, had an assessment of this, which was generous to the Republican side, which, which, I, which I found interesting, though not particularly convincing uh, in you know, the, the rationale that was at play here. I think it's pretty obvious that the undertext here was this idea that these, these, these legislators were out of line. It's extremely difficult to escape from the fact that the two of the three people who were punished were yeah. young black men and not the older white ones. And, you know, you mentioned the book that I'd written. I'm I'm in this lens of seeing things through generational politics now. And, it, you know, that was what jumped out at me. Right. This is these are young people of color from that represent urban districts uh, that that were speaking out an issue that's extremely important to young people, which is gun violence and who did so outside of the bounds of the norms of of expectations for the chamber. And, you know, there, there's a lot of tutting, you know, that was the ostensible reason for their Alistair. Although I think obviously there, there were a lot of the, you know, as I said, the subtext to it, uh, but, but it really is, this is the tension. This is the tension in American politics between a, a class of representatives of politicians who are represent an old style of politics that doesn't reflect uh, a lot of how Americans view what is happening and what needs to be done. Uh, and this, I think, was a manifestation of that. Okay. So you mentioned guns. Uh, David, today the NRA is meeting um, Indianapolis or someplace in the Midwest, right? Donald Trump. Yes. Donald Trump's going to be there. Mike Pence is going to be there. Asa Hutchinson is speaking to them. Ron DeSantis is speaking to them. Uh, this is one of those issues on where the American people are seem to be going in one direction, but the Republican Party is digging in his heels more and more. Uh, across the board on uh, uh, against anything to do with gun safety. No, yeah, that's right. And uh, I'm, I don't know how it's going to play out in terms of votes, but there's no way that any of these Republicans are going to go up and propose any kind of change to the nation's gun laws, even in the wake of these shootings. They're certainly not going to do it in front of the NRA, which is a big group for financing and vote mobilization. So, uh, you know, it's funny, I, I've been I've got a I got to write something off of this meeting today and the editors want some kind of gun story. And I said, well, I can give you that. But the, the, I think these candidates are all going to say the same thing and be very pro Second Amendment. 
and they're going to talk about other ways to deal with these shootings, like mental health programs and stuff like that. They're not going to they're not going to propose any changes to the gun laws because the Republicans are stuck in place on this issue. And even though I think you're right, it looks like the uh, it looks like the population is shifting a little, at least a little bit. Uh, that's not going to change very many minds in the GOP. So guns is one issue. Um, another one where it seems to me the Republican Party is showing it's kind of tone deaf today uh, is the issue of abortion, which made a lot of news this week on several fronts. Um, Sudeep, Kellyanne Conway, Trump's campaign manager last time around, or when he won, rather, um, and uh, his counselor in the White House, was on with Laura Ingram this week, where she admitted that Republicans have a little challenge here, as Phil indicate, Philip indicated, with the younger generation. Here she is. We can't be beaten um, on this policy-wise. I think we've already won the policy arguments on the economy, on education, on a number of issues. I think we've got some work to do on the young people who think um, differently on abortion, perhaps, or guns, or climate change. The thing I'm really concerned about with this, Laura, is that the left becomes a turnout machine with young people. So you think they have some problem with young people <laughs> on abortion and climate change and guns? That That is a, an interesting and honest political observation uh, <laughs> right there. But it is it it is obviously a, an issue with young people, but it's a, an issue with engaged voters. What gets so many voters to actually engage and show up? And this is an, an obvious case uh, with abortion where... People who thought this was a 50-50 issue, which it once was in polling when abortion was legal across the country, um, are now recognizing that it's not as simple as that. Um, Six out of 10 voters support legal abortion in most cases. This is increasingly going to to shift once once you see rights taken away, once you see medication abortion taken away, uh, if that is what's, what's happening right now with these court decisions, you're going to see attention shift, you're going to see conversation shift. And particularly for lower information voters, they're going to hear about this in a way over the coming year that will have profound implications uh, for the electoral map. And that is what I think some Republicans are recognizing now that they've won a uh, what, what they would consider a, a major battle uh, for a major cause. This is where it's headed. Well, they won the major battle on the Supreme Court, but that hasn't that you know that doesn't seem to be enough. I mean, as we know, Ron DeSantis signed the six-week ban um, in Florida yesterday. A Texas judge this week, uh, kind of backed up by an appeals court, at least to a certain extent, putting restrictions on um, use of this um, uh, uh, anti-abortion this abortion pill rather that's been in use for medical use for some twenty years. Um, Philip, they seem to be digging the the hole deeper and deeper on this issue, which it looks like is going to go back to the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is to some extent a reflection of a pattern we've seen in Republican politics for the past decade or so, which is that they are playing to the reinforcement of their core base of support rather than expanding their coalition. Right, that the, mm-hmm. the, the things mm-hmm. that 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 are earning them plaudits and Fox Air News time are the things that they keep going back to, and they're getting immediate positive reinforcement on. Uh, and I think that that you know that is a reason that Donald Trump sort of backed into the presidency in 2016, and then the part 
already got hammered in 2018, 2020, 2022. I mean, you know, getting hammered in 2022, obviously being, you know, having an asterisk applied to it. But, you know, I think this is the pattern. The pattern is that they're making these changes. And I think it's really important to, to recognize that when Kellyanne Conway sort of says, well, on one hand, we have the economy, which, of course, is, you know, debatable. On the other hand, they have these issues. The issues that she outlined are ones that to a lot of young people in particular are near existential. Right. Climate change is something that affects them over the long term that isn't going to affect older people. Abortion is something, you know, if you are over the age of 50, the odds that you're spending a lot of time worried about whether or not you're going to have to have an abortion are fairly low. And then, of course, gun violence is something that a lot of young people, you know, I'm a young parent. My kids have safety drills. My kids are kindergarten. Right. Like these are things that affect us as young people. I mean, (laughs) I shouldn't categorize myself as a young person anymore. But, you know, these (laughs) these are things that are existential for people. Uh, and, you know, whether or not tax rates are at a, at a, an acceptable level certainly will move votes. But I think that one of the things the GOP is learning is that these are not simply uh, more issues on a checkbox, but rather things that are really, really strong motivators for people. Yes. And so uh, it's certainly an issue on which every Republican is going to have to uh, take a stand. Uh, Tim Scott discovered that the second day after he uh, was out on his uh listening to or whatever the hell you call it these days, when he was asked a very simple question, do you support a national ban on abortion? Yes or no? Tim Scott had a little trouble. Here he is. Would you support a federal ban on abortions? I would simply say that um, the fact of the matter is when you look at the issue of abortion, one of the challenges that we have, we continue to go to the most restrictive conversations without broadening the scope and taking a look at the fact that I'm 100 percent pro-life. I never walk away from that. But the truth of the matter is that when you look at the issues on abortion, I start with the very important conversation I had in a banking hearing when I was sitting in my office and listening to Janet Yellen, the secretary of the Treasury, talk about increasing the labor force participation rate for African-American women who are in poverty by having abortions. David Jackson, is that <laughs> is that when you say, uh, sir, you didn't answer the question? <laughs> I, I think it'll be one of the very few abortion questions in which Janet Yellen is part of the response. I don't think <laughs> yeah. we'll hear that too often. Uh, no, well, first of all, I think Tim Scott is really running for vice president, but that's just a, an aside. But yeah, that's... Uh, Abortion is another challenging issue for Republicans because it appears that voters are increasingly going one way and the party is going another way. The DeSantis six-week thing is the most surprising thing I've seen him do. I I thought he might go with a 15-week ban Mm -hmm. as opposed to a six-week ban, but he went all the way, and uh, it's it's, it's surprising. But, guys, I have to say one thing. I mean, we've talked about all the problems the Republican Party has, and, and they certainly do, but if you look at the polls, they're not in that bad of shape. I mean, Joe Biden's Democrats aren't in the greatest shape elsewhere. It's not a slam dunk that they're going to lose in 2024. It's certainly not a slam dunk in terms of the White House. And I don't think it will be in terms of Congress either. So the party has a lot of challenges, but so do the so do its opponents. Mm-hmm. Good point. Good point. But speak about the polls. Um, Sudeep on Politico this morning, which I'm still reading, even though I'm in Rome, um, It you had maybe page and a half of bad legal news for Donald Trump just yesterday, appearing in this deposition, testifying for eight hours. The Gene Carroll case goes to trial next week. The Justice Department is active on both fronts. Michael, I mean, Alvin Bragg is out there. So, and yet, as David points out, it looks like in the, at least Republican primary polls, the more legal trouble Donald Trump gets in, the higher the poll numbers go. What's going on? 
well, the Donald Trump and legal trouble have been a mainstay. <laughs> Those two words have gone together for decades. Uh, they've been fixtures. And look, we've been talking for eight years about bad press for Donald Trump. Uh, things that you think uh, are going to, to knock him down and knock him out, whether it's uh, two impeachments and insurrection uh, or this, this like endless stream of, of legal challenges he's facing now, he seems to be able to withstand that. That is the remarkable power of Trump in this moment. This is exactly what Republicans are trying to figure out whether they can exploit uh, to take him down and take him out and, and bring him down a, a couple of notches, at least, to, to make the primary competitive enough. Um, it, it is is obviously far too early to see what the rest of the country is going to think about this when we're in an unsettled economy. And we have uh, a, a lot of questions on the horizon about what the next year, year and a half look like. But um, Trump is being Trump. He is, he is, uh, uh, we've all written enough headlines over the years about Teflon Trump. Um, but this is really the, the big test of whether he really, he's able to withstand just this litany of, of, uh, of attacks from the legal system. So, Philip, um, you've pointed out, it would seem that with that, those legal troubles, that there would be a serious challenge to Donald Trump in the Republican primary. Um, as you've written lately, there doesn't seem to be a serious challenge. The candidates who have announced against him won't take him on directly, and some of the ones who are still thinking about running won't take him on directly. So, and And... <laughs> And none of them get any attention at all. All the attention, as you showed, goes to Donald Trump. How do you read it? Yeah, I mean, I why? Th- why? <laughs> well, I think I think a fundamental reason is that Donald Trump has spent the past eight years cultivating a response set, which which is benefits him enormously politically. You know, one of those responses that he's been cultivating is they are out to get you, and I'm the one standing in the way. This is sort of his his key mantra. At you know, second only to MAGA at this yeah. point in time, uh, that he is framing these these investigations, these probes, now the charges in Manhattan as being about the left targeting the right. And he's been very effective at conveying that message. You know, when you go and talk to Trump supporters, even, you know, back when he was president, you hear them saying, you know, they don't hate him, they hate us, and he's the one that they're targeting, right? Like that message has been very effective. And so when you are, if you're sitting there and you're Ron DeSantis and you're trying to navigate this, you want Trump supporters to come over to you, you, if you side against Trump on this stuff, you're siding with the left because that's how Trump has framed it. You're siding with Alvin Bragg and that doesn't do any good. Like who's, who's the voter that comes to you? You know, you know, maybe you get a couple of the guys to the bulwark or something who are, who are going to vote for you, but that's not going to do you much good. Uh, and, and that's the position that Donald Trump has established. And so that's why when you've had, you know, Nikki Haley getting out of the gates, you know, the angle she's been taking is, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we didn't keep losing all the time? And I think that's the strategy that, that has the best chance of paying off. And Nikki Haley's at 7% in the polls. So we'll, so maybe not. And, um, and it, it, to me, it's a reflection also of 2016, when there were what sixteen Republican candidates or whatever, and nobody, nobody's rallies were ever covered except Donald Trump's, right. which were covered by CNN and others. Co- uh, you know, from be- from beginning to end, these other, either already in or edging in getting in, uh, Republican candidates don't seem to be getting any media attention at all, Philip. 
right? This should show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, the, the the people who have announced their candidates so far. There's the guy from Rhode Island whose name I don't even remember. There's Vivek Ramaswamy, who's who's this you know sort of culture warrior businessman guy who doesn't have much of a footprint. You know, there's Asa Hutchinson, who used to be the governor of Arkansas, and who you know dropped his announcement on the Sunday political talk shows, which is like, you know, you might as well just be yelling into the Grand Canyon at that point. Uh, and then there's Nikki Haley. And Nikki Haley did get a little bit of a bump, but even a week after she announced, she's still trailing Ron DeSantis in terms of mentions on Fox News and Google search interests. So, yeah, I mean, there's just, there's not a lot of attention to pay them. You know, to some extent, the media can choose what it pays attention to. But, you know, I think people recognize that, that Donald Trump is the person to beat here. And that's why so much attention gets paid to Ron because he's the person who currently is positioned as the one person who is who might be able to do that. David Jackson, is Donald Trump still going to be the Republican nominee? Uh, frankly, I wouldn't bet on it. I, hmm. A couple things here. I think the, the the polls are reflective of the fact that, like as Philip Sadiq pointed out, is a, it, it reflects, I think, more Republican resentment of Democrats and this feeling that they are coming after us, even in the legal system. And so there's a rallying around effect on Trump. There's also the fact that this New York case has, I frankly, has, is attackable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, he's using a very unique legal theory to try to uh, accuse Trump of campaign finance violations. And I'm not sure that's going to go down well, very well with the voting public. But Trump's also in a lot of this won't be the I think this will be the only indictment Trump faces. Uh, he's very likely to be indicted in Atlanta over his efforts to overturn the election there. And the facts of that case are going to be pretty disturbing to a lot of people. And he's also got problems with his handling of classified documents. And he may even have problems with in terms of instigating the violence of January 6th. He could be looking at four cases. And I just don't see how you can run a presidential campaign when you're trying to defend yourself against four separate prosecutions in three jurisdictions. And I, I don't see how many voters will stick with them amid all this turmoil. And I just can't help but think that someone's going to emerge to, to defeat Trump and it, it, it just wouldn't shock me. To, so to answer your question, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put any money down. That he's got automatically going to be the Republican nominee because I think his legal problems and political problems are just beginning. There we go. Off to the races. And we're just getting started on this very busy week, crazy week uh, in our nation's capital with today's panel. Let's take a quick break here on the Bill Press pod and our reporters roundtable. And we'll be back and pick up with some of the other news of the week. Today's podcast brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Yes, those good men and women, 1.3 million working men and women strong members of the UFCW. Under President Mark Perrone, they service all of us in many, many different ways at our big retail stores like Nordstrom and Macy's. The people that take care of us at our great grocery chains like Safeway and Whole Foods. Those on the front line in our meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants, and cannabis plants. We thank the men and women of the UFCW for their great work taking care of all of us Americans, and we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Go to their website, check it out at ufcw.org. You'll be amazed at all the good causes they're involved in. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back on this Friday, uh, April 14, uh, Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod with Philip Bump from the Washington Post, Sudeep Reddy from Politico, David Jackson from USA Today. Well, Senator Dianne Feinstein, who has been out for over a month now, I think, uh, with a case of shingles, uh, the Senate comes back next week. She has said she will not be back, which really presents a problem on the Senate Judiciary Committee, which uh, doesn't have the votes to appoint to rather to confirm any Biden judicial nominees without her vote. So she has asked Chuck Schumer to appoint someone to temporarily take her place. Sudeep. What are the chances that's going to happen? Uh, look, this is obviously a fast-moving situation. There are a lot of things that could happen uh, right now, but it's, it's just remarkable given um, medical issues, family absences, all sorts of things uh, going on in the Senate of how little action has happened uh, in the Senate since uh, really last summer um, when they voted on the Inflation Reduction Act. There have just been very few days. I, I, I'm not sure there have actually been any um, where all 100 senators have been present. Um, and it's uh, it's just a, a remarkable moment to see what happens when a legislative chamber does not actually do anything. Um, that is part of what Republicans wanted uh, was to stymie the Senate. This is Mitch McConnell's uh, actual stated strategy for a decade. Um, but this is where we are. And it is uh, obviously, Chuck Schumer uh, has been around a while and knows how to work through some of these things, but he is going to have to uh, not only figure out what to do about the Judiciary Committee, but figure out how to uh, corral the number of votes he needs to get uh, judges a- approved and to make up for a, a substantial deficit Democrats have on that front. But the fact is, Philip, that um, Chuck Schumer cannot just appoint somebody to Judiciary Committee. It's a, it's, there's a, Senate rules require that both parties act together, and it would require, unless Mitch McConnell just said, oh, yeah, sure, you can do that, it would require 60 votes on the Senate floor to allow him to make that appointment. I mean, I I don't know about you. I see no way that Republicans are just going to turn around and let him do that. Would you agree? No, I think you're right. I mean, you know, the Republicans are not 
they're they're not in a position where they're likely to do Democrats any particular favors. I mean, I, I do think it's important to note, though, that this isn't just a Dianne Feinstein issue. It is obviously in, you know, Judiciary Committee, things like that. But I went back and looked. There have been 82, or when I looked uh, earlier this week, there have been 82 votes that have been taken in the Senate this year. You know how many of those 82 votes had all 100 senators present? Zero. Zero of those votes had all 100 senators present. Uh, you know, wow. the, over the course wow. of this, you know, ostensibly Democrats have a two vote majority in this in the Senate chamber. In only 30 percent of votes that were taken, were there actually two or more votes? <laughs> did the Democrats have a two or more <laughs> vote advantage? Right. You know, in part, it's because Fetterman was out and part because Feinstein was out. But it's just generally there's been a lot of absences. There's been people sick on the on the Republican side. Mitch McConnell's been out of commission for a while as well. The Senate has simply not been at a hundred person. Uh, level since August of last year. And so there, while Feinstein is obviously a very potent problem for Democrats in the moment, there is this broader issue that when you're talking about a very old population of people in particular, uh, and only a two vote majority in the Senate, uh, that, that the Democrats are stymied broadly by the fact that they keep having people missing these things. Yeah. So David Jackson, this will certainly, unless it's resolved quickly, uh, and in the Democrats' favor, it'll certainly increase the pressure on Dianne Feinstein to resign. She said she's not going to run for re-election, but to resign before the end of her term, right? Oh, very much so. Yeah, that's been going on for a while. I, I think, and I think the recent publicity is an extension of this effort to try to get her to retire. A um, c- couple things, Bill. We know we've seen this before. Remember the Strom Thurmond situation toward the end? He was virtually incapacitated, and it took the Republicans quite a while to persuade him to step down. And I think we've got a similar situation with Feinstein. I think the parties wanted her to, to leave for quite some time and it hasn't worked. And this latest effort, this latest series of news stories about her health, and maybe maybe that'll do the trick. But another pro- another situation is that Feinstein's not the only uh, senator who has health issues. Mitch McConnell just spent 10 days in the hospital after taking a fall, and that wasn't his first fall. So there are a lot of rumors about his health situation as well. So it's it's kind of a mess. A different kind of problem um, in the Supreme Court, where uh, Clarence Thomas first uh, was the news released, first broken by ProPublica, that he had been taking some luxury vacations uh, with uh, developer Harlan Crow from Dallas. And now it turns out that Harlan Crow uh, was also helping Clarence Thomas on the uh, financial front, buying Clarence Thomas's mother's home. And uh, which she is still living in, retrofitting it, uh, and um, and all of which Clarence Thomas failed to report on his uh, financial forms to the extent they exist in the Supreme Court. Sudeep, um, is this a lot about nothing? Meaning nothing's going to happen to Clarence Thomas, no about no matter how bad it is. Uh, true, <laughs> nothing's going to happen to Clarence Thomas, uh, no matter how bad it is. Uh, it requires. Um, actually feeling uh, this is this is the the entire issue with this branch of government it requires either consequences which uh, the chief justice would have to uh, to to bring forward which is not going to happen or it requires shame on uh, by the justice justice involved which obviously has not been the case for decades so the, the, on a thing that is just blatantly plainly uh, a conflict of interest um, in in profound ways, it is. It, it, it's not. It's not going to change anything except for making the Supreme Court look even more politicized and uh, emboldening 
people on the left who recognize that they've kind of failed um, for uh, several cycles in thinking about the judiciary and thinking about how important the judiciary is to their causes. And obviously, the right has recognized this for decades and has managed some uh, pretty remarkable uh, wins on the policy front as a result of that. And, and Philip, I mean, whatever you think of the politics of John Roberts, um, he does seem to be concerned about the reputation uh, of the Supreme Court, uh, its standing in public opinion. Um, wouldn't this be the perfect opportunity for John Roberts to say, yes, we should have some ethical guideline, ethics guidelines in the Supreme Court the way every other federal judge in the country has? Impo- do you see any possibility that Roberts might take that step? No, you're exactly right. And, you know, as this issue first arose, that was my first thought as well. I attended a, a, a discussion that he had a couple of years ago in which he was very fervent about, you know, talking about the Supreme Court yeah. as this nonpartisan entity and how, how strongly he felt about that. The problem is, though, that that first of all, I think everyone recognizes that Clarence Thomas is not going to be chided easily, right? That he, you know, he, he can't simply introduce this and not expect some internal pushback just based on what we know about Clarence Thomas. Uh, but, but then and second of all, there also isn't this the external pressure that would make it easier for John Roberts to do this. What we've seen from the right is not, a, oh, yeah, this is an ideal, uh, but rather defenses of both Thomas and Harlan Crow, his, his benefactor, uh, to, to, to sort of use a loaded phrase there. Uh, but, you know, there, there is not there is not, you know, beyond what John Roberts wants to do. It always becomes easier to do things if you have uh, the public space to do it. And that space is not being created by the people who are John Roberts' ostensible allies. Right. So there's a lot of attention this week on a totally different front about a leak of some very sensitive documents, military documents leaked from the Pentagon. Uh, The Attorney General Merrick Garland made a big announcement yesterday after an arrest up in Massachusetts. Here's the Attorney General. Today, the Justice Department arrested Jack Douglas Teixeira in connection with an investigation into alleged unauthorized removal retention, and transmission of classified national defense information. Shara is an employee of the United States Air Force National Guard. So, David Jackson, (laughs) my question is, how the hell does a junior airman with the Massachusetts Air National Guard have access to sensitive classified Pentagon documents? That is a very good question that I think is going to take months and maybe years to unravel. It's just a stunning thing. And he apparently took him so that he could show him to his friends on some right wing website to show him yeah, how war yeah. really works. You know, when I first heard about this, I thought it was some kind of deal about a guy, a protester of our aid to Ukraine and that that was his motive for taking this stuff. But uh, it doesn't appear to be that way. It just appears to be something that the guy thought was cool to have and share with his friends. And it's uh, it's just a stunning case that's going to play out for a while. It's going to have political ramifications because uh, we're wondering about this. What do you think Donald Trump's thinking about this right now? And what's he going to say to attack the Biden administration over it? It's just it's just going to be a mess. Yeah. Sudeep, um, we haven't. Well, at least I haven't. Maybe you at Politico have seen these documents. Do we know? I mean, this this had a lot to do with the war in Ukraine and the strength of the Ukrainian forces and the Russian forces. was any serious uh, harm done to uh, our security or Ukraine's? Do we know that? 
we should assume that it has. It's it's uh, an amount of information, a volume of information that uh, probably some of it probably could have been uh, uh, found and uncovered in other ways by Russian forces. But um, this is just a, it's a, a, a it raises so many questions about uh, not only how intelligence is, is gathered and shared and how information is spread uh, in a, apparently fairly wide fashion uh, to, to allow somebody at this level to, to access this and, and, and put it out there. But how has this information been spreading on social media? How has this been out there for so long without people actually recognizing it? It uh, In a year of conversation about classified documents and our inability to track them, uh, whether they're in uh, Donald Trump's uh, home or Mike Pence's or Joe Biden's office or wherever, um, there, there clearly is a, a problem across the government in making sense of how information is flowing and where it's flowing. And it is just remarkable to me that uh, this is not this is this issue has not been addressed more forcefully over the last two decades than we've dealt with uh, and, and so Philip, many other cases. It, it 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 keeps rearing its ugly head over and over. And we saw this on September 11. We saw it on January 6. Now we see it here. That there's some real problems with our intelligence community and the intelligence agency and the lack of, um, I guess, security for security's sake. Yeah, I mean. You're you're absolutely right that we've heard this a lot, and we heard it particularly, you know, in the in the wake of the Edward Snowden revelations about a decade ago as well, right? You know, right. why does mm-hmm. this guy who's a contractor for the NSA have access to these guys' documents that he can then leak to the to the press, uh, and it hasn't been resolved, right? I mean, pretty clearly, yeah. you know, one of the one of the issues here obviously is that this is a massive military operation uh, that the United States conducts on a daily basis that involves, you know. Ten hundreds of thousands of people uh, at, at in you know distributed around the world that need to share information. My understanding from our reporting at the post is that this guy, his job was essentially to maintain the infrastructure for communications, and that that necessitated they have high security clearance so that he could actually you know de- you know I guess he was fixing something and he, he could he could see what was going on. But you you need to have that right. You need to have people who can deal with the infrastructure. But since the infrastructure is carrying these highly classified documents, then you know to to what extent do they have access to them, right? Like it is, I think by by its nature, in part, a function of the fact that we have a a, a very broad classification system, but also simply we are the 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 you know we have the largest military in the world. We are distributed internationally. We have a very sophisticated a network of communications that needs to be maintained, and processed, and, and and dealt with, and all of these factors introduce thousands of points of failure. Uh, and mm-hmm. this is one of them that a guy who wants to impress his friends can, you know, yank some maps and, and photograph them on his kitchen counter. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of parallels, it seems to me, to the Edward Snowden case. Uh, and so today, uh, President Biden is on his way home, uh, landing in Dover, Delaware at the Air Force Base and then going down to Rehoboth Beach for the weekend. After um, a pretty triumphant tour to Ireland, David Jackson, I think the phrase that I will, everybody will remember from this trip to Ireland is uh, he told, I think it was the Irish Parliament, I wish I could stay longer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he also said he could, couldn't understand why his ancestors left such a beautiful place. So. <laughs> yes, indeed. But it was a pretty successful tour in, uh, in, in terms of foreign policy, who knows what was accomplished. But personally speaking, it was a successful tour for, for Biden. I think so too. And uh, it's always good to see, you know, 
people visit their roots and treasure their roots. And there's also a reminder, people tend to forget this. You know, Biden is only the second Catholic president the U.S. has ever had. So um, that's kind of an interesting thing, especially in light of the of our disputes over the abortion issue. But uh, yeah, no, it was a very good trip for him and uh, he did himself some good. And it was it wasn't it wasn't the worst thing in the world for him to be out of the country while all this <laughs> all this uh, political stuff was going on back here, and particularly the uh, classified documents kerfuffle. Yeah, Sadiq, I thought it was striking to see, you know, when the Biden motorcade goes, there were throngs of people, you know, in the street applauding and taking pictures. That That's that's not true of Joe Biden when he moves around the United States. Yeah, there is a long history of presidents uh, recognizing they're going to get a better reception abroad uh, than they will uh, in the U.S. And uh, some of them uh, might feel like they want to stay there uh, to soak up the uh, the 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 credit that they get when they're overseas. This was certainly the case with Barack Obama and his rock star status while he was uh, uh, dealing with the Tea Party here at home. So um, uh, I I guess President Trump did not have this experience, uh, but certainly President uh, Biden, President Obama and President Clinton did uh, in different ways as well. So Philip, he'll probably, I think he said he wants to come back, right? He'll probably go back to Ireland. Yeah, you know, look, I mean, uh, there, there's an aspect of this. If I were president, I would do a lot of international travel on my own private jet with, you know, with, with full staffing as much as possible. Right? You know, I do want to point out that Donald Trump did receive that sort of reception when he went to Saudi Arabia and China, right? When, when he was he was seen as a target for that sort of effusive response from the leaders of those countries uh, to some positive effect. So there you go. All right. Good look back at the uh, at the past week here on the part of our panel. We thank you, David. Thank you, Philip. Thank you, Sudeep. Um, before we let you go, uh, of all these crazy things or other things you were covering, what caught your attention this week? What particularly um, stopped you in your tracks? What was your favorite story of the week, as we call it? Sudeep, can you start us off? You know, I'm going to start uh, on the continent urine, um, Bill, with uh, the the debate across Europe about Emmanuel Macron and his comments regarding uh, China and Taiwan. He was essentially in an interview with my colleagues at Politico Europe. He was uh, saying that uh, the the great risk Europe faces is getting caught up in crises that are not ours. Um, And that led to his implication was that, uh, of course, he was taking a a trip through China trying to, to drum up business with business people uh, when he said this, but uh, it was distancing um, Macron from uh, from the U.S. conflict uh, with China over Taiwan and kind of saying this isn't ours to fight, especially after Europe has been essentially uh, dealing with Ukraine and dealing with the questions of democracy with the U.S. and all sorts of other countries stepping up. It's led to discord, dis, uh Cord across uh, Europe, of course, and lots of backlash in the the GOP. And President Trump weighed in, of course, as well. Uh, but it, it to me sh- showed um, the perilous moment of our politics, where you would think this is a no brainer for the Democratic blocs in the U.S. and Europe to stand yeah, together yeah, on something yeah. like. But it shows that uh, we're we're fraying around the edges as you you go into a second year of the war in Ukraine, as you realize these things aren't so easy, as you go toward a recession in uh, 40% of the, the global economy and the two democratic blocs in the world. It's this this year suggests we're, we're, uh, we're not gonna see the united front uh, that we, we might've imagined um, when, when we came into, um, into this cycle 
just a few months ago. No, good point. A lot of people said it showed that Macron was not ready for prime time, but I mean, he's in prime time. He's been in prime time for a long time. It did seem like a, an amateur uh, response. Uh, Philip, how about you? What what was uh, your particular favorite topic? Well, I, 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 you know, normally we try and elevate stories people haven't heard of. I'm going to choose one that everyone's heard of, which is this fight on the right over Bud Light, which is just really, really fascinating to me. I mean, it's extremely stupid in a lot of its iterations, absolutely. Uh, but it really reflects this, this, you know, if you look at what Bud Light had said prior to uh, it's, you know, it's very limited partnership with this, this is trans woman, uh, Dylan Mulvaney. What it had said essentially is we need to increase our consumer base. So, you know, we're mostly this brand that's associated with, you know, sort of fratty, older white guys. And we need to, we need to move beyond that because we're losing market share. And in that, it really is an encapsulation of the Republican Party, that the Republican Party, too, is dedicated to this very small and shrinking group of people that needs to expand outward. And so when you look at it through the lens of partisan politics, it's fascinating because what you see is that the Bud Light fight really is this microcosm of what the right broadly is trying to do. And it, it, it is triggering the, triggering the exact same sorts of backlash. And from that lens, I think it's absolutely fascinating. It also shows you've got to pick fights that you maybe have at least a chance of winning, right? Yeah, I mean, look, everything's woke these days and, you know, you can just, the, the amount of grifting on this, you know, some guy came out and he's like, now we have this far right beer that you can do, which would cost across 20 bucks for a six pack plus $15 <laughs> shipping, right? You know, there's lots of ways that people can leverage this uh, and in a way that sort of informs us about American culture. I don't know. This is particularly important to David Jackson, who loves Bud Light, of course, so. <laughs> I left my Bud Light years back when I left graduate school. <laughs> How about your story of the week, David? Well, I'm going to I'm going to go back to the sports uh, arena uh, because of the, there there is news now that uh, Washington Commanders owner uh, Dan Snyder is in fact going to sell the team, which is happy news for all of us because it ends the most tumultuous and uh, incompetent leadership of a sports franchise that I've ever seen. Um, this back during the 1990s, this guy took over, bought a franchise that was revered by the local fans, was one of the most valuable professional yep. sports franchises yep. in the world, and he just just basically ruined it. I mean, their on the field performance has been okay sometimes, but off the field they've been riven by uh, sexual harassment lawsuits, bullying of the fans, uh, ownership uh, mismanagement, and interference in player personnel decisions, and just about every bad thing you can imagine so the fact that dan snyder is selling the local football team is a good is a rare piece of good news for the people of washington probably the most hated man in washington right i, w I would say so yeah yeah can, can i just interject for yes, quickly? as, yes, as a knicks fan i have to object to dan snyder being cast <laughs> as the worst owner in sports That's oh. <laughs> we, uh, we brought him up in our discussion of this last night yeah that, 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 that is a good point he is uh yeah he's yeah. The very similar situation. Yeah. I, I also I also have to add to your list, David, saddling us with the name of a team we couldn't even pronounce, right? Uh, <laughs> we weren't allowed to pronounce, and for years refusing to give it up. No, exactly. goodbye, yes, yeah. goodbye, good riddance. So I have to tell you my favorite story of the week uh, hit home to me when I saw today uh, somewhere online that uh, this um, survey group called Data Central, which is a restaurant industry group did a survey of 4,500 menu items offered on restaurants in the United States last year, and they turned out uh, that it turned out that the number one food 
preference for Americans is no longer Italian food. It's no longer pizza and pasta. It is now number one Tex-Mex. Um, <laughs> now, oh, the Texans are taking over again. There it is. It hit me hard because you know I'm eating pasta and pizza almost every day, if not twice a day, uh, here in Italy. Uh, and I, you know, I I like occasionally uh, some good Tex-Mex food, but um, Italian food still remains my favorite. And so I guess my reaction to this is um, that's good. The more people that eat Tex-Mex food, that's more Italian food left for me. <laughs> so <laughs> so it, all, it all works out in the end. Uh, anyhow, with that, David Jackson, USA Today, Philip Bump, Washington Post, his new book, check it out, The Aftermath. Uh, and Sadiq Reddy from Polico. Thank you guys for a great job. And thanks to all of you for listening. Good to have you with us this week. And we want to uh, encourage you to come back Tuesday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod, where I'm going to be interviewing one of the most important journalists in Italy. Maria Latella is a columnist for Italy's number one newspaper. She's a radio talk show host. She's a TV anchor. Uh, We're going to be talking about Italy's new right-wing government and also about what Italians think about the United States these days and what they think about their own country and its challenges. That's up next on Tuesday on the Bill Press Pod. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week.